What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is the senior economist for the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which he co-founded back in 99, Dean Baker, the author of several books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy or Structure to Make the Rich Richer. You can read his blog at Beat the Press. Uh, CEPR.net is the website for the uh, Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net. You can tweet Dean at DeanBaker13. Dean Baker, welcome back to the program. It's been a long time. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, you know, as both an economist and as an observer of the political scene and very thoughtful commentator on how these rules are structured and how they work on, on Jerome Powell and the Fed. I've been writing about this recently. Uh, I, of course, have been following the Fed closely for more than a quarter century. I think Jerome Powell's really made a sea change at the Fed. He's made a commitment to full employment and basically shifted the priorities of the Fed in a very, very fundamental way. So for decades, the Fed's view has been that they're concerned about inflation and employment was at best secondary. And there have been many times I could go through, you don't want to hear me go through all the times, but there have been many times where the Fed raised interest rates to slow the economy, mean fewer jobs, throw people out of jobs, or keep them from getting them in order to preemptively prevent inflation. Right. And, and Dean, if, if, if I could interrupt, um, isn't, the, isn't the legal mandate, I mean, literally the law that created and essentially regulates the Fed, doesn't that literally say that the Fed has two equal purposes to maintain full employment and to and basically control inflation? I think it's more like, you know, maintain the integrity of the money no, supply. Absolutely it does. And it absolutely does. And this is one of the things that's striking that in spite of that legal mandate, the people at the Fed perceived their policy, their their obligation as being to control inflation. And I did a blog post last week or maybe the week before where I recounted this meeting I had back in 1994 with Alan Blinder and Janet Yellen, two very liberal, decent people. I respect them both. And I was there with two colleagues, and we were arguing that the Fed should put off raising rates because we knew that they were planning on raising interest rates because the unemployment rate was falling and it was hitting levels that at least many economists felt would cause inflation. And we were trying to argue, why don't you wait? Why don't you wait? You could see if there's a problem with inflation. Why don't you wait? You let millions of people get jobs. And Alan Blinder said to me, well, the Fed is an institution that's committed to price stability. And I said, well, you're committed to 4% unemployment, because that was in the law at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, no one takes that seriously. Whoa. And then I said, well, uh- you don't have to take the commitment to price stability seriously. And then he goes, yes, I do. Yeah. So the thing that that haunts me about all this, Dean Baker, there was a, a quote. I used it as an epigraph for one of my books. I think it was uh, screwed, but it was a quote that was in the Wall Street Journal with uh, Alan Greenspan in 1997, where he said that his job or the job of the Fed, the job of the Fed chair is to maintain. And I think I'm quoting this. It's been a lot of years, but I, I think I'm quoting it accurately to maintain a certain minimum necessary level of worker insecurity so as to avoid wage inflation, or words to that effect. 
And so it's not just like reducing inflation. It's like preventing wage inflation and others preventing wages from going up as well. That's right. And that really had been, I mean, that was Greenspan, of course, the chair. And he's just one of the members of the open market committee that determines the Fed's interest rate policy. But he was enormously influential and pretty much always got his way. And he was quite explicit. He didn't want to see wages rise too rapidly. And he acted to prevent wages from rising too rapidly. And again, that had been the policy at the Fed really until Jerome Powell. Now, they moved away from it a little bit in fairness. I mean, uh, his predecessor, Jan Yellen, of course, is now Treasury Secretary. I think he had moved away from that some. And so there had been progress previously. But Jerome Powell really is a sea change and quite exclusively saying, look, we want to have very low unemployment because when we have low unemployment, that means people that are ordinarily discriminated against the labor market, blacks, Hispanics, people with criminal records, they're able to get jobs because that's who's out there. And he said that's a good thing. And right. that's a real sea change from where we were, certainly with Greenspan, but even to some extent with Janet Yellen. So forgive my complete ignorance about this, but uh, <laughs> I thought that Jerome Powell was still running the Fed. I, you know, I thought that there had, you know, that that was just a continuous process. Is he not? Has he left oh, the he's Fed? He's still running the Fed. His, oh, okay. his term will expire in January of next year. I and see. Okay, thank you. Biden will have to make a choice as to whether to reappoint him or not. Now, there is somewhat of a tradition of reappointing Fed chairs even by the other parties. So mm-hmm. when Obama came in in 08, he, of course, had to deal with Bernanke, who was uh, President Bush's appointee. He did reappoint him. Subsequent to that, of course, you had Yellen picked as Bernanke's replacement. Trump departed from tradition and chose to pick Jerome Powell instead. But there had been a pattern. Greenspan was uh, appointed by several presidents. I was quite critical of Jerome Powell during the Trump administration because the Fed was basically creating money out of thin air and using it to buy stocks and bonds of corporations. It looked to me like they were artificially holding up the stock market. Was I wrong in that perception and, and in that critique? They weren't buying stock. They did buy bonds, and that did help support the stock market. It also brought down interest rates, and Corporate that bonds. made it easier yeah. for, for people to borrow across the board, particularly homeowners. A lot of people refinanced to lower interest rates. When you're facing a recession, it's hard to see an argument as to why you'd want higher interest rates. And, right. You know, some people were upset about that, but I, I'm about as anti-corporate as you get in general. I, I don't see that as having been the wrong move. So you think Powell was doing essentially the right thing throughout the Trump administration. It was not, if he believes in full employment, he believes in full employment. It wasn't just that he was trying to do something because Trump told him to. Uh, Yeah, I'd be very surprised if there was any direct influence from Trump, or for that matter, even indirect. Trump was very unhappy with him for much of his tenure, and there was some talk that he would have Powell fired, and it's not clear that he could. Mm. But in any case, I doubt very much that anything that... Powell did was directly or indirectly influenced by what Trump may or may not have wanted him to do. Dean, in our last minute, is there any way beyond picking good people as Fed chairs to force the Fed, basically, to have as their principal focus employment rather than inflation? Well, sure. I mean, the Congress does have oversight. Also, I've worked with this group, Fed Up, a labor and community group that we pressured the Fed, and I'd like to think we had some role in getting them to change their position. But Congress does have oversight, and at the end of the day, the Fed is governed by a law that Congress passed. So it could, in principle, change the law to make it very clear that its, its top priority has to be full employment. So they are a creature of Congress. They're answerable to Congress. Yeah. Do you see that happening? Is there any kind of movement toward that in Congress? There had been in times past, but I think if you have a Fed that's committed to full employment, I think it's harder to get the momentum to look to try to change the Fed's mandate if yeah. in a different story than maybe yes. I get it. Fascinating stuff. Dean, thank you so much for dropping by and, and, and clarifying so many of these issues for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Great talking with you. And you know, keep up the great work. The website, again, CEPR.net. It is well worth your efforts. Dean Baker. This is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, 
author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can also tweet him at Prof Wolf, W-O-L-F-F, as in Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm reading throughout the Trump presidency, Trump kept talking about how he wanted a strong dollar, like that's some reflection of a strong America. And now, mostly the Financial Times, but I've also seen reporting about this in the, both the New York Times and the Washington Post, there are all these articles about how the dollar is weakening and uh, is this the Biden policy or is this some new Fed policy or what's, whatever's going on, you know, and what does all that mean? Well, it's very important to get the definition clear since many articles don't do that and that simply makes it harder for the reader. The basic idea is the following. When you do international trade, when you try to sell American-made goods abroad or whether you bring uh, foreign-made goods into the country, there has to be a change of currency. French wine is produced by people who use the euro, but if they uh, are consumed here in the United States, then the people who buy the wine have to pay in dollars. So somewhere along the way, in the passage from growing the, the wine, the, the grapes in France, and consuming the wine here, there has to be a change of currency. A strong dollar means that the dollar is worth a lot. You do get a lot of euros for a dollar. That's when it's strong. When it's weak, it's the opposite. You have to give a lot of dollars to get a euro. So a strong dollar, here's the, the economics of it, a strong dollar means that anything produced abroad appears cheaper to Americans because you can get more of the other currency when you exchange dollars for it. A weak dollar is exactly the opposite. It means that foreigners get more dollars for their currency and therefore goods priced in dollars appear cheaper to them and they will presumably buy more. What it means in the most practical sense is the following. A weak dollar means foreigners will buy more American goods because they will appear cheaper to them. So if you want to boost exports, make your currency weak. On the other hand, if you want to make it easier for your own citizens to buy foreign goods, then you want a strong currency because it makes the exchange, how many of the foreign uh, currency units you get for a dollar, uh, greater, and therefore it's cheaper for you to buy. So in our country now, because our economy is a problem, it's not so bad for us that the dollar is weak because that'll see more American goods sold abroad and fewer foreign goods purchased here because we have to give more dollars, since it's weak, to get the foreign currency. And that's what this is all about. Mostly, these movements are determined by how many foreigners want a dollar, in other words, what's the demand and supply of dollars relative to other currency? But sometimes the government can intervene. The Federal Reserve in this country would be the agency that manipulates, uh, that's typically the job of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, uh, manipulates the currency by having the government itself get into the business of buying and selling currencies, which can happen. And finally, it's a policy matter because if the interest rates in the United States are lower than they are in the rest of the world, and that is the case now, well, then nobody wants to keep their money here because the interest rates are low, and so nobody's interested in getting dollars. People who have dollars, American companies, they don't want to keep their money here either because of the low interest rates, so they move their money to, say, a, a European bank or a Japanese bank, which pays higher interest, and when they do that, they dump the dollars, that's what they say, and buy the other currency, and that'll weaken the U.S. dollar. So think of it as a consequence of what's going on in the world economy that then has its own impact back on that economy. So why would Donald Trump be promoting a strong dollar? Was it just uh, he doesn't understand all this stuff and he thought strong sounds good? Because that absolutely, okay. absolutely, I know, I know Honest. it's mind-boggling, but look, it, it's a pattern. When he imposed the tariffs 
on various countries, and particularly China. He said over and over again that he's really sticking it to the Chinese by putting these tariffs on, the Chinese are going to have to pay. That's false. When you put a tariff, it's just a tax by another name. And it means a tariff against the Chinese goods that an American company, when it brought Chinese goods into this country, would not only have to pay the Chinese, whatever the price of it was in the Chinese currency, but on top of that would have to pay the tariff that Mr. Trump had imposed. And that was money out of the pocket of the American company going to Uncle Sam to the federal government, like any other tax. So when Mr. Trump kept saying that the Chinese were having to pay for these tariffs, it was, it was the kind of mistake that a freshman in an economics course in college would flunk the exam for writing such a thing. And yet it was amazing, not only that he repeated it, but that so many of the press kind of carried it without the corrective that really is so obvious that, that it means I have to say an answer to your question, Tom. Yeah, I don't think he understood it. I think he was talking to people who like to hear that anything about America that is strong is good and anything about America that is weak is bad. And unfortunately, you have to be completely ignorant of economics to think like that. Yeah, apparently. Alan Greenspan famously talked about maintaining the Fed, maintaining a certain level minimum necessary level of worker insecurity as a way to stop what he called wage inflation. In other words, whenever the, the economy would start getting really good, Greenspan as Fed chief would crank up interest rates and slow down the economy, which would throw more people out of work. It would stop wage inflation, in quotes. It looks like uh, over the last few years, Jerome Powell has said, inflation is no longer our top priority. You know, the law that created the Fed said you have to equally consider inflation and unemployment, and that Powell is leading the Fed toward unemployment, toward lowering unemployment, perhaps at the risk of inflation, but, you know, who knows. How does employment tie into a stronger weak dollar and the Fed policy there? Here's the basic way it does. When you have a weak dollar, which is what we have now, when you have a weak dollar, imports go up in price, in dollar price. And the United States is now so dependent on the rest of the world that unfortunately we can't switch away from many of the things we import just because the price goes up. So here's the irony. The weak dollar makes imported goods go up in price. And when you have other forces pushing towards an inflation, then a weak dollar adds to the inflationary pressures. And I think what you're going to see, if things don't change in the next few weeks, is a real surge of inflation, which will then force Mr. Powell to go ahead and raise interest rates, which makes everybody in the stock market quake, and which could put a big break on any recovery in the United States, and that would mean rising, not falling, unemployment. Amazing. Amazing. It's all how interrelated it all is. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by today, sir. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Democracyatwork.info, his most recent book, The Sickness is the System. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. And welcome back. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Oh, what a great conversation today. Casino capitalism comes into my mind. What we have traded for the active rights that we should have is a chance on the midway. Gambling, it doesn't matter what it costs me. I want the possibility, the chance, the fantasy of becoming this ultra-rich person. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we've been teased into. There's a mindset which is whatever it takes me to be one up on the next guy, even if it's my neighbor, even if it's the guy I work with, somebody I've grown up with, I will take that opportunity to have that one upsmanship because this means I can step onto that midway and I might get farther down than he will. It's a zero sum game, right? That the one where you see the world as not everybody doesn't have an opportunity to get along. The only way I'm going to make it is to take it from somebody else. 
And that's very former president-like, right? Previous guy, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so a world that's ethical, moral, where we look after each other. It's like the difference in the Bible. There is this point where people are warring against each other, and then finally in the good news is supposed to be, now you become a member of the family. Now you mm-hmm. are a child in this family. You are not a slave anymore. You are, mm-hmm. you belong. And I think uh, we have been spun out of that consciousness into competing and seeing everybody as somebody who might come along and take yours. It's horrible. It's this midway where some people understand that those games are rigged and other people don't know that. And I think, I think Americans intuit that, MJ. I think that's why when Donald Trump said it's all the game is rigged, a lot of people said, yeah, I'll vote for you. And his promise was he was going to unrig the game. And of course, what he did was he brought in, I mean, literally for every cabinet position, he brought in, you know, a con man or woman. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. The founder of The Daily Poster, dailyposter.com, David Sirota, also magazine editor at uh, Jacobin and columnist with The Guardian. And in fact, you know, uh, for many years, one of my colleagues as a talk radio host is with us, dailyposter.com. As I mentioned, you can tweet him at David Sirota. David, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked, and I appreciate you dropping by. I subscribe to your newsletter over at dailyposter.com, and and, and this this uh, rant you went off on about the resurrection of Reagan's welfare queen just popped my eyeballs. Tell us about it. The resurrection of the rhetoric that suggests that jobless people who are getting unemployment benefits, expanded unemployment benefits, that these are people who are lazy, these are people who are turning down work, these are people who are uh, hurting the economy by supposedly not coming back to work to jobs that they're being offered. This has been resurrected, and it's being portrayed as something new. But of course, as you allude to, it's some of the oldest rhetoric in the book. I mean, this was the premise of Ronald Reagan's campaign in 1976 and in 1980, where he was berating supposedly overly generous government benefits. The Republicans have now resurrected this rhetoric, and there's an agenda behind it, just like there was under Ronald Reagan. We've heard this line that, oh, people aren't coming back to work because the unemployment benefits are too good. And what that's really designed to do is to try to get people back into jobs at low pay. In other words, Donors to the Republican Party don't want to allow the labor market to uh, work in a way that employers have to raise wages to attract workers. So when people are hearing the notion that jobless people are not coming back to work uh, and there's a supposed labor shortage, what's really being said is, is that the Republicans don't want to have their donors have to pay workers better to attract them back to work. Essentially, the new welfare queens are the people who are on unemployment. The new god-awful you know, government, let's hold them in bondage forever. This is the Republican theory, right? Group are the people who are trying to help people through the pandemic. The science is pretty much in, the political science, as it were, and the economic science, that the reason there seems to be a shortage of workers right now, the principal reason that there seems to be a shortage of workers right now, is that women aren't coming back into the workplace because their kids are not going to school or daycare because we still, you know, only only a third of America is fully vaccinated. We still have a crisis going on here, CDC guidelines notwithstanding. I realize this has really seized control of the Republican Party. You know, we've got and, and you, we have multiple states now where governors have said, OK, we're just going to end the unemployment benefits because the states ultimately have final say on these things, even though they're federal benefits flowing through. Uh, how do you see this shaking out within the Democratic Party? You're you're a keen observer of this. You were a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. You've you've been around around the block a few times here in this uh, world. And what can we do to support Democrats who want to make sure that we still have an intact social safety net? Census Bureau data tells us that the primary reason, or one of, at least one of the huge reasons, that people are not coming back to work 
is because of the pandemic and they have kids at home. Uh, We also have, by the way, it's worth adding that 43 percent of small businesses have admitted in a recent survey that people aren't coming back to work or they're having trouble finding workers because of people's need for child care and because people are searching for better paying jobs. I mean, let's let's take a moment to realize that when the Chamber of Commerce or when Republicans say an additional $300 a week is why people are not coming back to work uh, because they're seeking better pay, they're basically admitting how terrible the pay is and how terrible the wages have been in America for decades. Now, your question about Democrats is a, is a great one. So far, Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress have been pretty good. I mean, the stimulus bill that extended unemployment on that score was a good bill and good spending. The thing that, that, to watch, though, is, is that you saw last week, you saw Biden say that he's going to help states toughen up the work search requirements for unemployment benefits. Which is, you know, Joe Biden. Yeah. And look, Joe Biden back in the Reagan era. Let's be clear. Joe Biden was echoing a lot of that welfare queen rhetoric, that really grotesque. A lot of Democrats. were. Yeah. A lot of Democrats. were, And then, look, he's not he's not saying what the Republicans are saying. So he's better than them. But the, the thing to be concerned with is if he's trying to appease the Republicans with that rhetoric and surrender that argument, that's a bad sign. So I think people should be contacting their members of Congress, telling them not to give up on those benefits, not to accept the premise that Republicans are putting forward. Amen. Amen. David Sirota. And one of the best things on the web that you can check out is dailyposter.com. Check out David's David's, uh, publication. David, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Francis in Seattle. Hey, Francis, what's on your mind today? I was wondering about Reagan giving the amnesty to illegal workers, that being a good thing he did. And I remember after he did that, because I'm about your age, I remember after he did that, that the wages for entry-level workers in the United States fell. And the same thing happened after they ended welfare in the 90s, greatly expanded the unskilled hourly workforce and wages fell. And that was part of the impetus for the editor, I think, of Harper's convincing Barbara Ehrenreich to go do that experiment she did where she tried to live on minimum wage jobs in right. her book, Nickel Dimed. Yeah. So well, I there's there's no doubt that from Reagan's point of view, what the uh, immigration reform and amnesty program did was increase the labor force and make it harder for those who would restrict labor, which is a fancy way of saying unions and increase the competition for jobs among workers, which will drive down labor prices, wages, no doubt about it, bingo. So, you know, a good catch there, Francis, <laughs> you know, was that to the benefit? Well, you could debate that. Michael in Chicago. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Yes, I wanted to call about homelessness. There is a partial solution that we can all engage in. They're called affordable housing trust funds. They're happening all over the country. They can be done in a city, in a county, or even a regional area. They provide new use local dollars in unique ways to build new housing to to house homeless people. And a community can help 100 or 200 people 
a year. Larger cities like Los Angeles simply did this good uh, thousand or more people a year. So we can chip away at it with these trust funds. People's Action is a group I work for, works on that. Also, Community Change is a group that works on this all the time. So if there are partial solutions. Great, Michael. I'm so glad to hear that and that there, there are people like you who are out there doing the work. That's, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. So I got my email this morning from Social Security Works. Today would be a great day for Joe Biden to fire Social Security Administration Commissioner Andrew Saul and Deputy Commissioner David Black. Yeah, these two Trumpies are still running the Social Security Administration, making it harder for people to access their benefits, making it easier to strip people of disability benefits, stuff like that. But that's just the stuff that's like bubbled up to the surface, uh, up to the very top. There's a fascinating piece published over at Common Dreams titled Advocates Sound Alarm Over Quiet Trump-Era Move That Could Further Privatize Medicare. And I'm like, what? Medicare works really, really well, at least in my experience. I've been on it for five years, and I love it. So what's the deal? Let's check in with our old buddy Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works. SocialSecurityWorks.org is the website. Also, StrengthenSocialSecurity.org. And Alex, of course, you can tweet him at SSWorks or at ALaw202. Alex, welcome back to the program. Tell me about this this Trump. What little trick are they trying to play here with us on Social Security? You know, in a lot of our discussions, you talk about how they've drilled holes in Medicare. That's where they insert the for-profit companies into our public programs. And this is that, exactly that. I'm really happy to be talking about it with you because usually it takes us a lot longer to bubble these attacks up to the surface because they are so wonky, so behind the scenes. They're buried deep in the rules and regulations. This is a uh, project that they are doing. It's just an investigation in how to make Medicare more efficient, as they say. But really what it is, is it's put together by the for-profit insurers. They got it in during Trump. It directs traditional Medicare to basically without people knowing what's going on. You know, they might get a piece of paper saying that this is happening, but are people going to follow it? Doubtful based on history. And what it does is it just shifts people over to a managed care situation where you go from traditional Medicare, where if you get sick, you go to the doctor or you get injured, you go to the hospital, you get the care that you need, full stop, that's it. In this one, there are networks again, right? So there's incentives put in for these corporations who are running it to keep you in network. And that means there's out of network and there are fees and all sorts of things that we don't know what powers they're going to be given. But we do know that the only way that private insurers make money is by taking our premiums and denying our care. It's the denying our care that they're being given the power to do again in the form of what is going to be an investigation in improving the efficiency of Medicare. But we've seen that. So it sounds like, you know, that's how Medicare Advantage was sold to us. I was just going to say, it sounds like they are trying to force everybody into Medicare Advantage. I mean, if, if you sign up for Medicare Advantage, which is a tragic thing to do, frankly, but if you sign up for Medicare Advantage, odds are you're going to end up with a private insurance company that says, okay, you have to go to this doctor, you have to go to that hospital. If you go to any other doctor or any other hospital, you are going to have to pay for it out of your pocket. There's a whole list of things here that we won't pay for. We don't cover surprise billings. We don't cover out-of-network stuff. And people think, oh, it's wonderful. I got Medicare Advantage. Now I can get a free eye exam or I can get my teeth cleaned. And, And they don't realize that once they get sick, all hell is going to break loose and they're going to get 10, 20, you know, 30,000, $100,000 bills. Not only that, before their doctors can do anything. A relative of mine went into his doctor the other day. He's over 65 on Medicare and he's on regular Medicare, just like me. The doctor said, well, I think you need this, but I've got to check with your insurer first. And my relative said, what are you talking about? I have Medicare. And, he, and the doctor was like, oh, you don't have Medicare Advantage? And he was like, no, I have regular Medicare. And he was like, oh, good, good. We're fine then. You know, I can just good. order this test. But it sounds like the way this is going to work is they're going to pick certain parts of the country 
And some people are going to get a letter that says all of your Medicare services, instead of just going to any doctor you want or any hospital, you know, and getting any tests that they think you need, and Medicare will just pay for it. Instead, you're going to have to go to this particular network for this particular PPO, and you're now enrolled in Kaiser, or you're now enrolled in United Health, or something like that. Is that how it's going to work? One of the most despicable things is. The reason that doctor phrased it that way is because most people don't know, you know, like your relative was able to say, no, I'm in traditional Medicare. But most people don't know that they they just think, oh, this is Medicare. Right. They're not going to know that they've been put into some other thing. They're going to get a notice, but it's going to be very confusing. And they certainly aren't going to highlight in the first sentence. This means that your care can now be denied. Oh, and by the way, you don't get a choice on it. And in fact, it's worse than that, Tom, because people did get a choice. They chose traditional Medicare, right? And then this is overriding that choice and saying, we're going to put you into this managed care situation. Again, what managed care means is they make more money by denying you care. That's the only way these companies make money. And I, I know you know this, but for your listeners and viewers, I think people should appreciate that the the cash cow for these private corporate insurers now is actually getting these types of uh, contracts with uh, the government. These that's where they're making so much money, and so this is a very lucrative business for the corporate insurers, uh, and we have to fight it back, knowing that they're not going to just stop here. Uh, this is just one of the holes that they're trying to drill in Medicare. Right. And and in fact, these two uh, people who are running the Social Security uh, Administration right now were apparently instrumental in putting this into place. And Biden does need to fire them both. What can people do? How can we speak out? Who do we direct this to? As you said, this, you know, it could sound very, very wonky. And and I'm guessing that probably the majority of legislators have no idea that this is even going on. What can we do, Alex Lawson? Luckily, we have Social Security Works. We have our senior advisor on Medicare, Diane Archer, who is really the person who unearthed this and has turned it into uh, a more public-facing campaign. So if you come to SocialSecurityWorks.org, we're staying on top of this. But you're exactly right. We went to uh, Senator Wyden, who is critical on these fights uh, and is a a true champion of Social Security. Uh, And he was really clear. He, you know, no one knows what this is. Uh, no one except wow. the lobbyists for those corporate insurers are who, who got it in know what it is. So the first thing we need to do is we need to educate uh, congressional offices that this exists uh, and that it's a danger to traditional Medicare, to our Medicare. Uh, so that is what people can do on their own. They can call their members of Congress, call their senators, let them know that they don't want uh, any experimenting with handing over our Medicare to these corporate uh, these corporations to profit from uh, and just get offices familiar with that. That actually works, as you know, and we talk about all the mm. time. Um, offices do listen. And so if they start hearing about this, then when we go in there on the inside, it's not just us in D.C. It's coming from both sides. But that's where we are. We need to educate people about this attack vector. So go to two things, two steps. Number one, go to SocialSecurityWorks.org, get on their mailing list and read all about it. Number one. Number two, call 202-224-3121 and talk to your member of the House and both of your Senates and educate them. Alex, thank you again for dropping by. You have been such a great resource over the years and such a good friend of the show. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, as always. David in Lakewood, Colorado. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? The biggest thing is, is that I am like 64 and three quarters year, years old, being a $2 million man because of expensive but employer-paid health care with various medical issues and stuff like that. You know, I'm just sitting here going, okay, great. Now I get to figure this thing out. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I definitely understand that I, if I can safely keep the uh, system of what's been going on at arm's length and celebrate a certain amount of personal freedom by not having to be tied down to a job. Uh, currently I am on, I, I'm, you know, blowing through some of my retirement just to survive a little bit through all this, and I'm paying for health care on the open market, although it's cheap because I try to keep 
Yeah, but I try to keep. Yeah, but your questions about Medicare, money right? out of you know, I, my income is okay, is low enough. It isn't that much, so yeah, I consider myself lucky. So right, what's so, so, David? What's your question? My question is, is that you know, basically, I'm pretty much leaning on the fact that I need to kind of ignore the uh, Medicare uh, uh, advantage thing, and I guess you know, what do I do with that twenty percent? There, okay, great question. First of all, yes, you're right. Medicare Advantage is a scam. These are privatized health insurance programs that are run by big insurance companies. They're very profitable to them. They seem great when you're healthy. When you get sick, they are. They can be a, a screaming disaster. So that leaves you with regular Medicare. Regular Medicare only covers 80% of your expenses. Um, and so you, you sign up through Social Security and the Medicare office for regular Medicare. Um, and, and then you buy what's called a Medigap policy, G-A-P, uh, because it covers that 20% gap. And there are multiple companies that offer Medigap policies. Um, the ones that are offered through AARP, I'm pretty sure, are from United Healthcare because they've got to deal with each other. I'm not a fan of that company, but they're there. Um, Liberty Mutual uh, offers some of the real, uh, you know, I think some of the best in the country. Um, there's, but there's a, uh, most of your health insurance companies have Medigap plans, um, in and in some cases in addition to Medicare Advantage plans. And the Medigap plans are standardized. There's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I think I'm on plan H, right? And used to be on plan E. And um, the different plans have different limits of you know what they're what they're going to cost the company, and they have different prices. But the benefit, the advantage, David, is there's no fine print, there's no got you. The companies, unlike Medicare Advantage, can't change the rules in the middle of the game and, and send you a new notice of changes. These are these are standards and regulations and rules that are established by the federal government. So. You know, I would pick a company and pick one of those plans if it was me. I'm just, I can't tell you what to do, but, you know, and, and just sign up for regular Medicare. Did I answer your question, David? Yeah, you did very well. Hey, and okay, 73 good. and 88 from a, from a 75 meter sideband veteran. I can't believe <laughs> that's I great. I used to love 80 meter CW. 73s, David. Thanks. Marilyn in Sun City West, uh, listening on KBCS. Hey, Marilyn, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just, earlier this week you were talking about your radio station in Denmark where um, you had callers call in and say, you know, it's impossible that people are going broke because they're sick in America and why isn't there people revolting and why aren't they burning down the cities? And you said to them, and your answer was spot on, you said, because that's just how they think it's supposed to be. And I just want to tell you that when I came here from Canada a few years ago, I was that person. I looked at my Republican husband and I said, you're paying three, five, eight, nine hundred dollars a month every month for the rest of your life. And that's okay with you. And, you know, I said exactly that. Why aren't people revolting in the streets? What's wrong with you people? And he said, Marilyn, you don't understand. He said, it's always been this way, and we just don't mm. know any different. Yeah. And, and I said to him as well, you know, I said, I think when you talk to some of your listeners, perhaps rather than Denmark and Norway and Germany and countries that are small, and yes, they have smaller fridges and smaller housing, I think Canada is the example, because if you blindfolded mm-hmm. yourself and crossed the border, we're the same. Same houses, same cars, same people, same food, same language, same everything. And yeah. yet we have that health care. Canada does, yes. And and, uh, and and a much more functional society. And Canada, by the way, banned Fox News. <laughs> so yeah, that might I have something that. to do with journalist. it. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's remarkable. Marilyn, thank you. Thanks for the call. And, thank you, and uh, Yeah, you're welcome. Good talking with you. Let's see here. Terry in Gainesville, Florida. Hey, Terry, what's up? You had a Medicare Advantage question? Yes, actually in Dade City, Florida. So I don't know why it's coming mm-hmm. from Gainesville. But anyway, uh, okay. I signed up for Medicare Advantage 
quite uh, about a, over a year ago, and they have paid a lot for everything. In fact, my uh, my insulin went to no copay on my insulin, and I used one of the high-priced insulins. And I just mm-hmm. had some heart procedures done, and so far so good. They paid for everything. I only had a $25 copay when I went in the hospital. So my question is, I That's guess, good. why should I be unhappy with it? What you want to do is find out where the loopholes are, where the gotchas are. Um, do you have to participate, for example, with a particular network? Are you in a PPP, PPO plan, I think they're called, or, or you know, an, an in-network versus out-of-network plan? Do you know? Uh, no, I, I have I have to be in network, and uh, it's a it's a PPP HMO type plan. Right, right. So so the way that you get screwed with those kind of plans typically is if you're out of town and you get sick or you get injured, and you can't get to one of the approved doctors or hospitals, you're going to have to pay the entire bill. And so if you're in another state where, you know, there's, there's not somebody in that plan and you get in a car accident or something and you end up, you know, in the hospital for a month, you could be a million dollars in debt, number one. Number two, uh, the whole surprise billing thing is, it has grown out of these PPPs, which is, or PPOs or whatever they're called, um, which is where the hospitals, um, increasingly these for-profit hospitals, what they're doing is rather than having, for example, an anesthesiologist, it's almost always the people that you don't have any interaction with, you never meet. But say they have an anesthesiologist that instead of being an employee of the hospital, this person is their, their anesthesiology group contracts with the hospital and wh- whichever doctor happens to show up on that day is the guy who puts you under and monitors you during your surgery. That person may well not be part of your network. In fact, that's almost 100% of the time when people complain about suddenly getting a $25,000 bill after going to the hospital and going, what the hell is this? That's what happens is it's called, you know, these out of network uh, billing events that happen within in network hospitals. And that's growing, and I guarantee you there's nothing in your Medicare Advantage plan that will prevent that from happening. Um, a well-run hospital that you know, is trying to maintain their reputation uh, rather than trying to make profits might prevent that from happening, but you're basically at the mercy of those folks. Whereas if you have regular Medicare, it covers you everywhere in the country, under all circumstances, in every hospital, and with every doctor. Now, all they have to do is take Medicare, which is the vast majority. I mean, there's some pediatricians that don't take Medicare for obvious reasons, but am I making sense, Terry? Do you get it? Uh, yes, but I noticed on my Medicare when I was uh, going through this whole thing that on Medicare the copays are were outrageous for for medicines and they only paid eighty percent. Yeah, it's true. You know, uh, Medicare right now, uh, well, you've got that donut hole. Uh, Medicare Part, you want to sign up for Medicare Part D, and it pays the first up to, what, 2500 bucks or thereabouts, and then you pay all of it yourself, and then after it gets above, what is it, 5000 something like that, um, it picks it back up. And you can buy policies to cover that. Um, but you have to get a separate Medicare D policy, which mine is $30 a month. And then you have to get a separate Medigap policy that goes along with your Medicare, and mine is like 150 bucks a month. And that then covers you. But yeah, you're, you're having to pay for these things, but on the other hand, you're getting something of value. Terry, I gotta run, but thank you for the call. Hey, Dennis in Riverside, California. Attack Donald Trump on his businessman reputation. He's a big fraud. Read David K. Johnson, read oh, all yeah. the stuff about him. I stiffed everybody. How he kept a stable of lawyers like a mafioso kept uh, a stable of goons and hitmen. That's the way to attack him. Otherwise, Biden should have won by a lot more. They never mentioned that. They never tried to call him a fraud. Instead, they yeah. it's all about voting for good old Joe and vote for Kamala Harris. She'll break a glass ceiling. And it was all kind of lame, really. If you think back yeah, to when you- 2016... Yeah, I, I agree with you, Dennis. And, and, and I think that, you know, the, the media just, you know, has always fallen. I mean, literally going back to the 70s, 
The media has always fallen for the lies that Donald Trump has told them about what a great success he was. Back when he was, you know, he had a couple hundred million dollars worth of real estate that he had inherited from his daddy, and he lied to Forbes and said it was worth a billion dollars, and they published that lie. And then as he started building in New York City and, and was dealing with the mafia and uh, or mafia-controlled companies and whatnot and, and uh, you know, uh, lying to his banks, and I think that's now going to come back to haunt him, and lying to his insurance companies and lying to the tax people in, in New York State and in New York City. And, and uh, you know, hopefully, he, you know, all those things are going to come back on the Trump organization. I, 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 my prediction is that within five years, the entire Trump organization is going to be in bankruptcy. And, you know, every, every member of the family will have skimmed their three, four, five hundred million bucks off the top and stashed it away in some foreign account. And we'll never have to work again and we'll never have to worry again. But, you know, that this organization has always been like a giant Ponzi scheme. It's always been, you know, a giant scam. It's always been based on tax fraud ripping people off, lying to people like Trump University and, and, and so many of the condos and things. You know, the, the Ivanka got busted for making a sales pitch for condos. Oh, yeah, we're at 90 percent or whatever, a real high percentage. And it turned out it was some very, very low percentage of sales. Um, now you've got uh, Scotland looking into what, you know, Trump's lies. He, he actually received money from the government of Scotland for, for Tunbury and apparently used it to lay off employees. It was supposed to be used to keep your employees on your payroll. I mean, you know, the guy is, is not just a hustler. He's, 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 a, he's a con man, I, you know, uh, unless you can think of a better yeah. word, Dennis. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, yeah, the trouble is that the 74 million people who voted for him buy it and yeah, I know. have to figure out a way to get them to unbuy it. And uh, it might be crude. I don't know. But talking about all the other things that are fascinating and all that, um, it's, it's to a Trump voter, it looks like an end run around his success with the economy in, uh, when he, yeah. before COVID. So I uh, think back to 2016, it was the third Bush versus the second Clinton. All right. Uh, big snore. Okay. Yeah. I'm out. All right. Yeah. All right. Dennis, thank you. Good points all. I appreciate it. Bob in uh, Chula Vista, San Diego, California. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind today? Out here in San Diego, I have a friend who's an octogenarian. She went to UC Berkeley, paid almost nothing in tuition, pocket change. And I'm sure. wondering, I went to Berkeley as well in the uh, late 80s, and I did have a little bit of student debt, but it was manageable. But I'm wondering, why can't we promote investing in human capital? Because we know that every dollar spent in public education comes back five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times to the government and taxes. Yeah. And all yeah. we need to do is, is make it need-based. So we're not just giving away money. We're investing in the future, just like we're investing in infrastructure. So Absolutely right. Um, and, 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 the, and the GI Bill, by the way, the, you know, we, we now have measured this, right? We've had enough years to look back on what was the investment in the GI Bill, how much money was paid out. And, and, and you know, like my, my dad went to college on the GI Bill. He didn't graduate because mom got pregnant with me and he had to drop out and go to work in a steel mill. But um, uh, Louise's dad, my wife's dad, uh, he got his law degree on the GI Bill and became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. And wow. uh, what we know now is that the money that was invested in people like my dad and Louise's dad, um, uh, the people who went to college on the GI Bill, that 100% of that money, which not only included tuition, but in some cases included housing and subsidies, um, you know, in mm -hmm. books and, and even a, a monthly, uh, a small a monthly subsidy, that that money came back to the United States sevenfold, 700% return on investment in increased tax revenues. In other words, the amount of money, you know, not so much my dad, but certainly Louise's dad who got his law degree, he made so much more money that he paid so much more in taxes that had he not had that college education, it wouldn't have made that money for the country. And so we got a 700% return in additional taxes on the cost of the GI Bill. How can we not look at that and say it's crazy not to have free college education? Joe in La Grande, Oregon. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I had a question about your um, prices set by the government for Medicare. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. so if we have the government set the prices, and I'm kind of comparing apples and oranges here, but Modi also set prices for the farmers, and he way under uh, underpaid them for the cost of their production. And I understand that, that uh, drug companies have hyperinflation, inflated costs and things, but at some point could it not come back to bite us if we're letting the government set prices on things? Of course. Of course. And, and by the way, Modi setting those prices uh, for farmers uh, just wiped out a lot of small farmers. Um, you know, yeah, it, it, he's not a, he's and, not a good and, man. And, yeah, and, and, and therefore you had farmers committing suicide and farmers protesting, and then Modi brought in the army and started killing farmers, and, you know, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. That's, that's um, apples and oranges. So I think because it's a, it's a corporation versus individuals. So I'm sure that that's right. apple oranges part right. of that. But, yeah. but this, this trips thing, and this was why if you, if you didn't uh, have an opportunity, Joe, and I know, you know not everybody watches the entire show or listens to the entire three hours, but if you have an opportunity to check out our YouTube channel and listen to, uh, which is youtube.com slash Tom Harbin, um, and listen to or watch the conversation I had with Lori Wallach, who's the uh, executive director of Global Trade Watch, the, uh, the, the arm of public citizen that looks at international trade. Um, her point was that this uh, TRIPS um, deal, this, this waiver in the patents, is not going to hurt the, uh, the pharmaceutical company. It's not going to hurt their ability to set prices in the countries where they are doing it. Um, you know, where they're selling their products like the United States and, and Europe, um, it well, is going that, to make more money for them, into, actually. Go ahead. Could it drift into other companies or different industries as, as kind of where I'm coming from it? So I'm sure. I don't think this is a slippery slope situation, Joe. I, okay. You know, I think everybody Good. recognizes that if the time comes that the pharmaceutical companies say, screw it, we can't make any money, we're, we're, we're going to go make cars instead. Um, that we're all in trouble, um, and and I think we're we're away we're we're a good long distance away from that. Although I realize that that argument is actually being made on right wing radio right now. I heard I heard a commentator yesterday, you know, making that comment. You know that that you know Biden just wants to destroy the pharmaceutical companies, and pretty soon they're just all going to move to Europe and and say to hell with you, America. Um, no, they also that's not made what the Biden's... same comment that they were going to that if they allowed gay marriage, that we were going to marry animals too. So they obviously exactly. are exactly somewhere. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 hyperbole. It's hyperbole that yeah. is is based on a grain of logic, but not really a grain of truth. And and go. the logic assumes you know a straw man argument that extends to some sort of bizarre extreme that nobody is literally even. Talking talking about. And, yeah, and uh, although the, the media not understanding this keeps talking about blowing up the patents, giving away the patents, undoing the patents. Uh-huh. Nobody's talking about that. We're talking about licensing these patents to other companies for a fee yeah. and a reasonable yeah. fee, a profitable fee. Well, it's just not they, quite as much money as you can make. Profit. I don't think anyone should profit from a vaccine anyway. Yeah, well, that's a debate we can have, and I'm not enti- I don't entirely disagree with you, Joe, but that's a whole separate topic, You're I think. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I think we have to achieve a balance. Al in Minneapolis. Hey, Al, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, the, the reason why I'm calling, I'm going to make reference to the health. I remember back in the days, my mom uh, working in Rhode Island, and we used to work in the factory. I'm 65 years old. We were making a 2015 cents an hour. We had blue crop, blue shield. Everywhere you you went, they were offering mm-hmm. medical costs. Uh-huh. Until Ronald Reagan came and took over, and he just privatized everything. They broke everything out. There were only one Bell system, and that was Bell system, the telephone company. I mean, everything was okay until Ronald Reagan. I think the problem to me, I'm not an intellectual like you guys, but I listen to you religiously. The problem in this country is people worship people with money. Yeah. I keep hearing my it's minority, sad, 1%, 1% got billions of dollars. If they only 1%, then how come we, the majority, don't have a say? I risk sounding like an old fart here, but I really think that for our younger listeners, and I know about half our audience is under 50, our younger listeners really need to know 
that there was a time in America where where you could make things work. I started a, a Terry O'Connor and I started a little business, an herbal tea business, you know, literally in our house in the 1970s. And by 1975, we had 18 people working in our factory, which was in an, a big old you know house in in Okemos, Michigan. And every single one of them had full Blue Cross Blue Shield, and it cost me thirty dollars per month per person. Because the hospitals were nonprofit. Blue Cross Blue Shield in Michigan was required by law to be nonprofit. It was just straightforward stuff. Of course, you know, 30 bucks was a little more money back in the 70s, but you know, and we paid good we paid good money. Reaganism has just gutted this country. And thank God Joe Biden is calling it out. He said it again just just an hour ago. He said, trickle down doesn't work. God bless him. He is so right. Hey, thanks for being with us today. We'll see you tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Be good to yourself and and people around you, eh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 